Hi, Middle Church. Welcome. Uh, blessed Lent to you and happy last Sunday in uh, Women's History Month. We are so glad that you've chosen to come and worship with us. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm coming to you from Lenape land in Harlem. And uh, we have this week new members class, our new members uh, that we want to introduce you to. So we're going to get right into worship. But before we do, let's take a deep centering breath together. Come, let us worship God. So um, I'm Adele, and pronouns are she, um, her. And I grew up in Mississippi, but I've been living in New York um, for about over 20 years. Hey, I'm Roddy. My pronouns are they and them. I currently live in Knoxville, Tennessee, although I am moving to Fredericksburg, Virginia this summer. I am Rick Garrett. I'm currently in Charlotte, but I'm from Seattle. Um, Hi, Katie. Uh, she, they. Um, I was born in Yonkers, grew up uh, in Dutchess County, lived in Asia for a little bit, teaching English back in Brooklyn. Van Cortland Park in 
in the one and only Boogie Down Bronx, the great Lenape land, of course, where indigenous brothers and sisters first came many centuries ago. This message for all ages is to remind you about being active again for body, mind, and spirit. Walk, dance, enjoy the sunshine, the rain, everything that God's creation has to offer. Van Cortland Park was a favorite place of mine when I was a little girl. And I remember coming here with my daddy, and daddy would always tell me and my brother Jerry, Monique, this is a huge, beautiful park. And we're gonna run and we're going to go and play. We used to play soccer with my dad. And if you and Jerry get lost, here's what I want you to do. And I'm gonna jump on this because I can still do it. Hey. Meet me at the tortoise and hare. The tortoise and hare is our meeting place. Heaven forbid you get lost, you can always be found right here at tortoise and hare. And you know what? I kind of think about how that works in life and with God, that no matter where we're wandering and no matter where we're going, that God is always with us and that we have a place to go when we're lost because we will be found. So say this prayer with me. Dear God, thank you for life, for spring, for new beginnings and to know that when we're lost, God can always find us. Amen. Amen. Siaham beku kanyen kwenkos. Siaham beku kanyen kwenkos. We are marching in the light of God. We are marching in the light of God. I'm so glad you're here with us for worship today. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Jackie Lewis, and I'm the senior minister here at Middle Church. We're delighted to have you with us wherever you are worshiping this morning. Let me give you a couple of highlights of things that are coming up for you to connect with our community more deeply. As we wrap Women's History Month, I want you to know that we are having a queer roundtable discussion on March 30th at seven in the evening, celebrating women. Please uh, find your way to that program and celebrate women with us. On Saturday, April 2nd, 
there's gonna be a young adults pop-up poetry celebrating the future of black. Again, we can't wait for you to connect with us in that space. And finally wanting to highlight today, we cannot believe how close it is to Holy Week. So on Palm Sunday, I'm inviting you to your inaugural experience at East End Temple, which at 17th Street and 2nd Avenue is going to be our new temporary home. And on that Sunday at 1145, I will be hosting a Jesus Christ Superstar um, watch party. So please uh, register and come be with us that day as well. There are so many ways to connect with Middle Church. Follow us on all the social channels and also at our website to find your particular connection to this community right now. This is the time, Middle Family, when we join our hearts and our minds in prayers. There's so much to focus on, so many ways that we can stand in the gap for our friends, our families, our nation, and our globe. So I want to invite you to take a deep breath and remember that prayer has been called primary speech. We don't even have language. God can hear us praying. And now we will pray together in the sound of music. Let us pray. Count on me through thick and thin A friendship that will never end When you are weak, I will be strong Helping you to carry on Call on me, I will be there Don't be afraid Please believe me when I say Strong, helping you to carry on. Oh. 
Elizabeth, I really needed that today. Uh, you've got my eyes watering. What a friend we have in God, who we can count on, who we can lean on, through our faith and love. Friends, let us continue to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, saying, ever-loving and holy God, hallowed be your name. Your reign come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the reign and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 This count on me, find you in your lost God, 
also gives us the peace that surpasses understanding. So I invite you now to write a sign of peace in the chat, wherever you're watching worship, or to greet the people in your circle. Peace be with you. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. This moment to arise. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see all your life. You're only waiting for this moment to be free. Amen. That was beautiful. Our scripture for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. Let's hear now a written word from the Lord. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided the property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in desolate living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the paws the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, 
one he was to the one he was enslaving quickly bring out a robe the best one and put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and he is found and they begin to celebrate now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house he heard music and dancing he called one of the enslaved and asked what was going on he replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered, father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given even me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the written word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you during the liturgical season of Lent where we ponder questions about the meaning of life and face the reality of death and our ephemerality head on. We're also in the final week of Women's History Month where we celebrate the accomplishments of all who identify as women, confess and lament the ways white women plunder women of color in their quest for pseudo-feminism, and name the long road we must still walk together towards full gender parity. Today's lectionary brings us to Luke 15, the whole chapter of Luke 15 is a series of three parables that follow a similar pattern. Something is lost and then found. First, a shepherd has 100 sheep. One is lost, then found. Then a woman, a woman has 10 coins. One is lost and then found. And finally, the parable we read today of the lost son, a final narrative in a series on forgiveness, the likely literary climax of Jesus's extended discourse. An all too familiar parable, if you grew up in the church or with a biblical foundation, as I did. Anybody else? Is this a familiar parable for anyone else? Let us know in the chat. Perhaps the familiarity of this story has made it really difficult for me to preach on it this morning. If I'm being honest, and you know I am pretty honest, I don't love this parable. It's a difficult one for me. I'm not sure if it's the unapologetic patriarchal nature of it. I mean, really, where are the women in the story? The seemingly simple lesson, God loves us and welcomes us home no matter what we do. The uncomfortable sibling tension, which believe me, has become even more poignant as the mother of two sons myself. The discomfort that arises in my body when I imagine myself putting in the work like the older son, but not really being seen then wondering, what does that say about me? Do I not lead with grace and forgiveness? I don't love this parable. But I wonder what us asking a whole lot of questions and implying some new hermeneutics together might do for us. Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine reminds us, not only do we often miss, in, miss the original provocation of the parables, but we also often imply ahistorical and archaic readings that distort the essence of the gospel into something Jesus really wouldn't be about. One common way parables are interpreted is by drawing a contrast between what Jesus taught 
and what Jewish people generally understood. If we do that here, we come to the age-old thesis of this parable that God welcomes us home and loves us no matter what we do, because that was in contrast to the rigidness of the Pharisees. But if we look at the totality of Jewish scripture to interpret God's love for God's sons as new or unique doesn't really fit with everything else we know about God. That's literally the essence of who God is. God is love. God is radical welcome. So that's not the takeaway here. What is it? I have so many questions when I read this parable. Anybody else? Put some of the questions that arise in you when you read this story in the chat. What is home? Who defines it? Is coming home always good? What does it mean to be lost? Lost from what and found to whom or what? Do we all want to be found? I wonder further, why did the younger brother really want to leave home when he did? Was there something about home that unsettled him? Was there already tension in his familial relationships or perhaps something worse? Why did the father let him go when he did without more discourse? Was there another parent? Where are they? And what really happened while the younger brother was away? We've been conditioned to believe there was sexual promiscuity, but there's nothing in the original Greek that lends itself to that. So it actually makes me kind of angry that purity culture jumped in here and uses this as an opportunity to demonize sexuality and sexual activity. I have more questions when we get to the younger brother's return. How long was it between when the father saw him down the road and began the party and when the older son was like, hey, dad, remember me? Based on what we know about Jewish cultural traditions and meals, we can imagine it was probably a good bit of time. So really, dad, you forgot about the older son for that long? <laughs> and finally, how does this parable end? What are the conversations between the two brothers like now? How long does it take for them to begin feeling like a family again, to be in right relationship? Or do they ever get there? The more I've wrestled with this parable this week, the more I've come to the conclusion that like with most things, we would do well to divest ourselves from a Eurocentric, patriarchal, white hermeneutic, and instead ask questions and read this story through feminist, African-American, Jewish, anti-racist lenses. A feminist hermeneutic, as pointed out by Louise Skrodoff, allows us to see the father as one who rules over numerous enslaved people, both male and female, as well as family members who are female, but never mentioned in the story. And further, Skrodoff firmly rejects the typical allegorizing that identifies God as the father in this story, as this divinizes the patriarchal father and fosters a romantic, I would add dangerous understanding of the patriarchal household. I'm going to say that again. Skrodoff firmly rejects the typical allegorizing that identifies God as the father in the story, as this divinizes the patriarchal father and fosters a romantic understanding of the patriarchal household. That shakes some things up. Does it for you? Who grew up allegorizing the father with God? Tell us in the comments. I did. Even this week in retelling the story to my kids, that was the easy jump I made. So just like God always loves us, the father here always loves his children. See how powerful the patriarchy is? Okay, so if that's maybe not necessarily God in the story, where is God in the story? Let's keep digging. 
Moving to an anti-racist hermeneutic, we recall that whiteness is made up and at the same time, a very real functioning force in our society. White, due to new laws written by the ruling class in the 1600s became a made up privileged identity. And thus, Nicholas Powers makes the powerful case that the prodigal son is born. White and male, he got more rights, more land, more forgiveness, more chances, more parties, more compassion, more coddling, thereby leaving the human family. And why did that prodigal son, why did that white man ever return? Let's go back to the scripture. A severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. There was famine in the land. Huh. Something was missing for him. Something was lacking. He developed a hunger. Something the white people masquerade as having everything figured out is making us thirst. We are famished, aren't we? We're all experiencing, as Ruby Sales calls it, the death rattle of white supremacy, clinging to whatever she can to stay alive. But we're thirsty. White people know in our bones that the way this country is functioning isn't right, isn't holy, and isn't working. We know white people are soon to be the minority here, and that makes us scared. We know black people are excellent and overly qualified to do the work, whether it be parent, govern, teach, run, preach, heal, get elected to the Supreme Court of the United States or the Office of Vice President, but the tenacity of whiteness tells us we should be scared, that we should reject this because our false sense of power and control is better. But living in this false reality is famine. We're hungry for more because we've left the family. We left it 400 years ago and we leave it every damn day. Do we want to be found? Do we want to go home? Henry Nouwen says it well here. The further I run away from the place God dwells, the less I'm able to hear the voice that calls me beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. In this story, moving with the allegory as the prodigal son, as the entitled white man or person, let's especially not leave white women out of this. Okay, Jane Campion, we see you in your racist remarks to the Williams sisters. The white child comes home. He gets hungry enough. He's drawn back to the promise of wholeness, healing, joy, life abundant equality, peace, fairness, all things that make a home. And now he wants sympathy though. He's, we're gonna cry one tear and say one quick confession and that's it. We continue to understand why this story is unsettling. This country was built on the unpaid labor of black people and on stolen land from indigenous people. Not only was it built on that, we continue to exploit all people of color today while simultaneously pouring resources into white endeavors. Instead of paying reparations, and fleshed commentary says, parties are thrown every time a white person expresses the slightest bit of remorse over past or present engagement with white supremacy. How many times have we seen this when a white person comes home to an anti-racist ethic? 
end quote. How long, O oh Lord, will the younger son be favored? How long will we coddle and favor white mediocrity at the expense of neglecting the faithfulness of people of color? How long, O oh Lord? Whose feelings are we protecting, centering, valuing? And whose are we neglecting? How might we rather be faithful to both relationships? Can we understand if we are the older brother that we are loved even when we are wronged? We are loved and we matter when our work is underpaid, invisible, constant, qualified, yet questioned. In an interview with Nikki Giovanni, James Baldwin said, for a long time, you think no one has ever suffered the way I suffered. Then you realize that your suffering does not isolate you. It's your bridge so that you can bring a little light into their suffering so they can comprehend it and change it. Can we hold both the rightness that is the coming home and the faithfulness of the one who's never left? How might we translate these questions structurally as well? Who gets resources, protection, again from enfleshed? Those who are privileged in coming to recognize their complicity and showing up to a movement, or those who are the ones who have long been laboring and been present to the collective reality for some time? These are hard questions. Maybe it's why I don't love this parable. It's uncomfortable. It's not easy. It makes me wrestle with my whiteness, my privilege. It makes me ask questions about how we, how I can be better. It makes me come face to face in this season of Lent with my own whiteness and our entire human family and my role in it. The truth this parable is telling me today is this. This story is all of us because it's all about how we do life together. It's a snapshot of our shared reality. God's not the father, nor the younger or older son, but God is all in and around the story, the one who cares about how we figure it out. God's that entity. And no matter what character we resonate with, God is pushing us to grow and transform as we are human together. We're figuring out how to be kin together. God is loving us when we feel wronged and not seen. God is making a way out of no way when moving forward seems impossible. God is calling us to reconciliation, reparations, and God is calling us home when we fall prey to false idols of society, success, of justice, of family. God holds us in this work. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we won't. We'll apologize and sometimes we'll get that wrong too but it's all the work of reconciliation. Our faith calls us to live in shared resources, in forgiveness and equity, and to examine the barriers to healing and restoration that are present, and to ask, why are they here? And how can we remove them? God asks questions about who's missing from the party and what the conditions are that led to famine and works with us as we strive to reconcile broken relationships and oppressive behaviors. And here's the other truth I think it's important to say that we know about God. We're never actually lost from God. God's always got us. We can run. We can squander. We can be jealous and mad. We can be overlooked, racially abused, patronized, oppressed. But we are never lost from God. Those things are not God. We've lost and forgotten our true worth as children of the divine 
as God bearers, as people marked with the possibility, the call to reconcile all relationships and all things. But we are never lost from God. By ending the parable where it does, we gather that even if we don't know the outcome, even if we don't know how the two brothers will be, even if we don't know when the filibuster will be abolished and voting rights will be for all, or trans lives will really matter, or war will end and dictators will fall, when microaggressions will stop, when all have enough to eat, when the violence against Asian Americans will cease, even if we don't know, because we don't, we go have the meal. When someone comes home and we invite others to join us too, because we can rejoice at the possibility of forgiveness and restoration beginning while not forgetting the harm and transgressions that have occurred. We can be people brim brimming with audacious hope. Henry now and again, I witness many signs of hope. I don't have to wait until all is well, but I can celebrate every little hint of the kingdom that is at hand. And hope, abolitionist Miriam Kaba reminds us, isn't necessarily the same thing as optimism. Hope is a discipline that we have to practice every day. And what would it look like if we were always ready, always open to the possibility that transformation is possible? What would it look like if all white people came home? If white supremacy were finally abolished? God calls us to the work of collective reconciliation from where we are. The work doesn't look the same for everyone, but the call is. And in this work, we are not alone. We have each other and we have God. There's the grace in the story. There's the God in the story. The grace of God that binds us together again and again, again and again. The parable of the prodigal son is about the restoration of community, the urgent and long work of reconciliation, and the reminder that God's hand is always open and always at work among us, guiding, sustaining, loving us, no matter where we find ourselves in the long cast of characters. Dory Hagler and I'm a recent member of Middle Church. I joined, well, I guess it was about a year ago. Um, I first found Middle several years ago, actually. I'm a photographer and I was photographing a member of the church at the church on a Sunday just before services. And I stayed for the services and I thought, oh, what a great, what a great church. This is so cool. What fabulous music. And, you know, I had been thinking about joining for a while, but I'm Jewish or I was born Jewish and I'm a secular Jew, non-practicing. Um, and I just wasn't sure I'd be comfortable actually being a member of a church. But during COVID, I 
you know, really felt like I needed to join a community. As a documentary photographer, I'm often on the outside looking in. And COVID just made me realize like how important it is to be um, part of a community, not just observing a community or documenting a community. So I joined and I'm so glad I did because I feel like I already sort of was a member. Everywhere I went, all the protests I was at, all the social justice movements that I was a part of, I would always see um, Middle Church there anyway. So I decided to join and I had to, you know, explained to my family, Dory, why are you joining a church? You're not Christian. And I said, well, you know, at this church, God is really the stick that holds up the placard that we're all carrying at the protests. And that was a definition of God and being part of a Christian church that I was very comfortable with and that my family could kind of, you know, they definitely could accept that too. And they understand um, that this community is really meaningful for me. So I am grateful to have found it. And I just want to encourage any of you who um, may be listening to this but haven't joined yet to join, to join the community. And um, you can join at Middle Church dot org backslash join. Um, it also also encourage you to support the church, uh, to contribute, you know, your your time, your effort and also money because it takes money to keep the church running. And you can donate at middlechurch.org backslash donate or you can scan the QR code that's on the screen here. So I'm thrilled to be a member and I hope that you'll join us and uh, wishing you just a really great day. Thanks. Bye. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round. And you can't find the fighter, but I see it in you, so we're going to work it out.
God, for the gifts of your community and your soon coming reign, we give you thanks. Amen.
From all that dwells below the skies, let peace and love and hope arise. Friends, we have feasted on beautiful music and beautiful prayers and a wonderful sermon that provokes our own theological reflection. Where does that text make you feel uncomfortable? Uncomfortable and comforted at the same time Amanda and I were texting. That's what God's word is about, y'all. Comforting us conflicting us, encouraging us, drawing us in to a place called home from which we can grow into our very best selves and our most beloved community. So hear this word of blessing. All along this Lenten journey and all along our lives of faith, may God's word do its thing in us and to us. May it equip us and challenge us and inspire us and enthuse us and hone in us, the people of God. Welcome home, y'all. Amen. <laughs>